Take your Bibles, you can be seated. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Everybody feel rested this morning? You feel good? Right. We got an extra hour last night. I told one of my, uh, told one of my kids that we got an extra hour of sleep last night and their response was awesome. I get to stay up an hour later. Like that's not what the idea there is, right? And so, uh, daylight savings time is over. We're back to four o'clock nighttime around here and, uh, excited about a long, cold, dark winter. That's how you like to start a uplifting message, right? So we're going to be looking today at something really cool. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. Uh, one of the ones that I, um, have preached many times, have talked about a lot, and it's one that always resonates as I do. And we're in this series talking about doing Whatever it takes, whatever it takes to follow Jesus, whatever it takes to grab hold of what he has for us, whatever it takes to reach people for Jesus Christ, when asked what are we supposed to do about it, we are going to reply, whatever it takes. This week I was, uh, I ran across a list of the most unpopular or least respected professions in America. The, the professions that people in America like the least. And so maybe you could think a few of those of your, yourselves, right? What, what do you think are some of the professions that people in our country don't like? Lawyers, I heard. Politicians, I heard. Car salesmen, IRS. Y'all, y'all are hitting the list. Like, it's not a hard one here, right? So here's the actual list of um, what they were. They were the top five or six politicians, lawyers, telemarketers, used car salesmen. I, I read somewhere that those four are all, well, I won't say that joke, um, all the same, right? Politicians, lawyers, telemarketers, used car salesmen, journalists, and IRS collectors. In fact, I heard that IRS collectors no longer want to be called IRS agents. They like to be known as compliance directors. That doesn't make it any better, does it? And here's the truth. If you were to ask a first century Jewish person your least favorite profession, there is one on that list that would have made the very top. The tax collector. In fact... Tax collectors haven't been very popular for a long time. In our country and other countries, I don't know if you saw that the Beatles were back in the news this week. They released a new single. Yes, those Beatles. They found a recording of John from the late 70s and Paul and Ringo and George worked on it in the 90s. And then the technology caught up where they could finish it this week and they released it on Friday and called it the last Beatles song. But the Beatles on their Revolver album, the first track of that album was a title, was a song called The Tax Man. This is the lyrics. Let me tell you how it will be. There's one for you, 19 for me. Because I'm the tax man. Should 5% appear too small, be thankful I don't have to take it all because I'm the tax man. If you drive a car, I'll tax the street. If you try to sit, I'll tax your seat. If you get too cold, I'll tax the heat. And if you take a walk, I'll tax your feet because I am the tax man. And all of God's people said, 
Amen, right? Now, it's in the sermon on the bad things of taxes, but it sets the scene because we're going to talk today about a tax man, a wee little tax man in Luke chapter 19. So let's just walk through. We've already read it, but let's walk through as we read it, these first 10 verses of the book of Luke chapter 19. It says, He, that's Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Now a couple of things as we kind of get going here. When I say the word Jericho, what do you think of? The walls of Jericho, right? That's the Old Testament story. They're going into the promised land. As they're going to the promised land, they come against this well-fortified city. And in this well-fortified city, they're trying to get in and they can't. And God tells them to do what? How does he take down the walls? He tells them to do what for seven days? To walk around and on the last day to just blow your trumpet, shout, and the walls came a-tumbling down. Right? This is that Jericho. Now, a couple of things to know about Jericho during the time of Jesus. And Jericho's still around today. There's still an area where that city is in uh, the valley. And in fact, it is below sea level. It's uh, in a valley. It's in the Jordan River Valley. And at the time that Jesus is there, that he is walking through Jericho, uh, one um, historian of that time frame said of Jericho, it was the fattest city in the land. Which then, that meant that it was the wealthiest city in the land because in that day, if you were, uh, let's say, overweight, it was because you had plenty to eat. And they equated that with wealth. It says in here that on, as he's going to Jericho, there was a guy there that was a tax collector. And the reason that tax collectors were hated so much is because the Romans had devised this system whereby they would conquer a people and then they decided that once you were conquered by them, they would collect taxes from you because you're going to be provided infrastructure and you need taxes to pay in order to pay for the infrastructure that Rome is going to provide you. And so they wanted tax collectors. But the issue was they were conquering people they didn't know very well and they wanted people who knew where the money really was. So the only way to do that is to get an insider, someone that was from that community. And so when the Romans conquered the Jewish people around Jericho, as they were enacting what they wanted to do in taxes, one of the people that they employed was one of their own, a man named Zacchaeus. And you know this if you've grown up in church. The way they collected taxes back then is the Roman government would uh, contract with Zacchaeus and he would say to them, the government would, hey, we need this much money, but you can take whatever you want on top of that and keep it. And here's what we'll do. We'll give you Roman soldiers to go with you while you collect. And so Zacchaeus would go to his neighbors and his friends and his family and the people he'd grown up with with a Roman guard behind him of the conquering peoples of his people. And he would demand money from them. The Jewish people had such a low view of tax collectors that in the Jewish Mishnah, which is 
the commentary on the Old Testament law that rabbis would produce, they said it was okay to lie to tax collectors. Because, they said, tax collectors are equivalent of animals and you can lie to animals. I didn't know if you knew you could lie to your pet. But according to the Hebrew commentators, you can lie to your pet because they're animals. I mean, the cat's lying to you anyways. He's acting like he loves you and he's planning your destruction the whole time. So you can <laughs> lie to your pets. The, the real thing there is the equation of a tax collector with an animal. That's the view they had. And so when we read in Scripture here that Zacchaeus was a tax collector, we already have a sense of where he fell in the whole process of this. In fact, when it says in a few minutes that he climbed a tree, we'll talk about that a little bit more, but it says he climbed a tree because he was short. Well, the reality is it wasn't just because he was short, although I'm sure that played a part. He couldn't stand at a distance. He couldn't stand back. But he also knew he couldn't go into the crowd and work his way to the front because they would have pushed him away. It's not just that he's a tax collector, though, right? What does it say? What kind of tax collector is he? He's the chief. He's the boss. He's the head honcho. He's the one that tells other guys. He's the one that collects from the other guys that are collecting from people. He's the one in the area that is in charge. And then it tells us just this little phrase, he was rich. Now, I want to tell you something. The word rich in the original language means rich, like lots of money. And if he was the chief tax collector, so you've got tax collector, boo his hate like an animal. You don't even have to tell him the truth. He's the head tax collector, which means he's over all of the bad people. He's the worst of the worst. And on top of that, he has become extremely wealthy. There are stories of these guys being carried through their hometowns like kings because of the money that they had. And you can imagine that every time he walked through town, people just sneered and hissed. Verse 3, he was trying to see who Jesus was. I'd love for there to be more detail there. Why? What's his fascination? How did he hear about him? What's, what, what's going on here? What, what made him think, boy, I've got to find out about this Jesus. I've got to discover who he is. What made him in that moment decide, I need to see who this Jesus is? Was it the dissatisfaction that he has felt? Was it the barbs from his hometown people that he finally felt enough of? Was it the dissatisfaction of having all that money and realizing that that wasn't the answer? Why did he want to see Jesus? And why was it such... An urge. Was it just because that's what everybody else was doing? That's what was going on that day, and we got to go see it. The, the neck craning that happens when you drive past an accident on the interstate. Is it just, i got to find out about what in the world everybody's so up in the air about with this guy, so excited about this guy, but we know that whatever it was, he wanted to see him. But he wasn't able to because he was short. So running ahead, I love that little detail, running. 
He didn't want to be anywhere around people. He wanted to be way ahead. He wanted to get there before anybody else so that they wouldn't necessarily see. He climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass that way. Now, I looked up what a sycamore tree looks like. I just kind of wanted to get a picture. We've got a picture, I think, of what this is an actual ancient sycamore tree in Israel somewhere. It's not the sycamore tree. I'm not claiming this is the one Zacchaeus climbed. But you can see it's got branches all over the place. If you're going to get up high, you can climb up a little bit just to get a little bit of a view. They say that these things will grow to 70 or 80 feet, some of 100 feet in the air. And so it's a large tree. It's not a a little, you know, little tree that's kind of out there. This is a large tree. And it says that he runs ahead, he gets there, and he climbs it up. And Jesus is coming. Verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. It's hard for me to read that, by the way, and not just use the old song, I'm coming to your house today, right? I like the way that that song makes it just kind of matter of fact. Zacchaeus, come on down, I'm going to your house today, let's go. This was an astonishing request from a religious rabbi. He didn't tell him, Zacchaeus, I need you to wash up. I need you to get everything right. I need you to make a sacrifice. I need you to get your life together. And then when that happens, I'm going to come over and we're going to have supper together. He says immediately, right now, let's go. And the Jews that were gathered around would have immediately recognized Zacchaeus because he's the chief tax collector. He's the head honcho of their most hated profession. He is the number one enemy of the town when it comes to collecting taxes. They would have known exactly who it is. And for Jesus to say, hey, all of you are here, I'm sure you're here to see me great i appreciate it i'm going to your house so he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully and all who saw it began to complain i know it's astonishing religious people started complaining he's gone to stay with a sinful man but zacchaeus stood up and said to the lord look I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I have extorted anything from anyone. I I love the the Christian Standard Bible's translation of that because previous translations, if I have stolen or if I have taken, but the, 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 the tense or the idea behind that is this, that if I have by force taken something from someone, if I have required them by force to give me something, the extortion is the idea there. He says, if I've extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. By the way, that was way more than was required. Although Jewish law did require that if you stole anything from anybody, you had to return the value of the item or the item itself plus 20%. Which is significant, but he says, not plus 20%, I'll do four times the amount. What's also interesting is the way that this original language is structured. There is not Zacchaeus saying to Jesus, okay, you got me. You got me, Jesus. Yeah, I did wrong. You know what? I'll give... 
I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. I'll do this. It wasn't begrudgingly that he does it. The words that are used in the original language, it is with glee and joy and excitement that he announces he's given away all his money. In fact, one commentator compared it to riding a roller coaster and seeing someone with their hands raised as the roller coaster starts to descend and the scream of joy that comes from people's faces. That that is how Zacchaeus is responding in this moment. It's not just, well, if I've got to give. How much did you say? It is, oh, Jesus, you have changed my life. And I am going to generously give whatever I can. Zacchaeus is changed from the inside out. Verse 9, David, today salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. And all of God's people said, Amen. Hey, I want to give you three things we learn about God. Anytime you approach any passage of Scripture, an awesome thing to do is just read it and say, what does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about me? What does it teach me about what I need to do? Okay. God first. What does it teach me about God? There are three things that I see in this passage. I'm sure there are many, many more, but three to focus on today that we see in this passage. And the first one is this. Jesus loves you. One of my favorite parts of this is Jesus sees Zacchaeus, calls him by name, and invites him down. It is a direct personal appeal to him. Jesus knows exactly who he is and loves him. And let me tell you something from the whole entirety of scripture. We know this. Jesus knows who you are, knows everything about you, knows all of your sinful deeds, your good stuff, knows every single detail of your life. And he loves you. No matter what situation you find yourself in, no matter what difficulty you may be going through, no matter what part of your life may be falling apart at the moment, don't take any of that to make you believe that Jesus doesn't love you. He cares about you more than anyone else in the universe. He loves Zacchaeus. The second thing we see in this passage is, God's love often extends to people we don't like. If you would have asked the Jewish people in that area that were watching Jesus walk through, what do you think Jesus thinks of Zacchaeus? They would have said, oh, if he's a man of God, he will despise him. He will cast him off. He will throw him away because he is not worthy. And yet Jesus makes the point. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that from history of how they thought of tax collectors. We know that from what they said. Who is this that he is going to? Why is he going to his house? Can you imagine the gossip and the scuttlebutt in Jericho when Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house? Sellout. Traitor. Who is this man? Why is he eating with him? He could have come to any of our houses. We're the good people. We're the good ones. Why did he go to his house? All I know is scripture makes it abundantly clear that that God loves all people. All means all. Everyone. 
God's love extends to people that you and I love. God's love extends to people that you and I don't know. God's love extends to people that you and I don't like. And somehow in our culture, it has become okay that if someone disagrees with you, for you to cast them out and act as if they are cut off from you and from, for those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ, the love of our God. We don't get to make that decision. Amen? We don't. Bill Hybels once said that you have never looked into the face of someone that God loves any less than he loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus also loves everyone that you don't. And here's the third thing we see is his mission. His mission is to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came and said, I didn't come for the well. I came for the sick. Now, the point Jesus will make throughout his ministry and is even making here in this point is, if it is dependent upon us to make ourselves well, we are all doomed. That Zacchaeus is in need of a doctor and is sick, but so is every other Jewish person lining that street to see Jesus that day. From the Pharisees and the scribes to the tax collectors and sinners, we all stand equal at the foot of Christ and of God because of our own sinfulness. And he says here that his goal, his reason for coming, this is in Luke 19, we are nearing the final week. We are turning the corner towards the crucifixion, turning the corner towards Jesus giving his life for us in this moment in order to save us from our own sins and to be the Savior that the world is offered in order to see salvation come to their life. And Jesus is saying, everyone is welcome. Because his mission is to seek and to save the lost. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves people you don't like. And his goal is to seek and to save us all. So what does that mean for us? Four things for us. First of all, we need to put ourselves in the best possible position to see Jesus. I don't think Zacchaeus had any idea how his life was going to change that day. He just knew he needed to see Jesus and he couldn't do it on the ground. So he went into a tree. Now in our lives, that may not mean climbing in a tree. If it does, I'm out of luck. Because I can't do that very well. But it may mean removing things from your life that are hindering you from seeing Jesus. It may mean incorporating things into your life that put you in a better position to see him. It may mean running ahead of some things and some people in your life that are dragging you down from following Christ. And it may mean that you have to make some very difficult decisions about what you allow or don't allow to come into your life because those things are detrimental to you following Jesus or those things are helpful in you seeking Jesus. I don't know your particular circumstance or situation, but I can tell you this. If there are relationships in your life that are causing you to walk away from the Lord, you need to ask about the value of those relationships. Friendships. Co-workers. If there are entertainment choices 
If there are browsing choices that you're making on your computer that are preventing you from following Jesus and hurting your walk with the Lord, you need to cut those off. If there are hobbies and activities and social engagements and clubs that are harming your relationship with Jesus, you need to cut those off. And you need, in some way, to incorporate into your life the traditional disciplines, is what they call them, of Christianity. Reading God's Word. You can't know God's love. You can't know God's instruction without reading His Word. Read His Word. Spend time in prayer. Put yourself in community with other people. And follow the Lord. We must put ourselves in the best possible position to see Jesus. Secondly, when Jesus asks, we say yes. He said, come down. And Zacchaeus came down. Simple. My life verse is Isaiah 26, 8. I've said it many, many times here. Yes, Lord, walking in the ways of your truth, we wait for you. For your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. Yes, Lord. Louis Giglio famously said, there is no other word you can put before Lord and it makes sense. You can't say no because that means he's not Lord. You can't say next or whenever or at some point, maybe, possibly, yes is the only word that makes sense. When I was a junior in college that summer, I got the opportunity to preach camp for cross point sports camps. And one of the, one of the stories I preached that summer was Luke 19. And each week I would climb a, like a 13, 14 foot ladder. I don't do that anymore because I think our workers comp insurance would go up astronomically if they saw it, right? And I'm also a couple years older. But I would climb to the top of that thing, and I've actually done that here years ago, climb to the top, and I would preach from the top of that ladder. And when I got to this point and says, when it's time to come down, we must come down, I would walk down the ladder, would go out, and eventually get to the thing. And the first three weeks that we did camp that summer, I was the only one that had never been a camp pastor before. And so I was convinced early on, they gave me all the camps that weren't going to have anybody there. The first week, we had the lowest camp in the history of Crosspoint. I think our counselor to kid ratio was like three to one. In Williams Baptist College of Arkansas. The, the second week, they didn't have enough kids to make camp. So we went on a mission trip to Grand Isle, Louisiana and just put camp on for the community. And in those first two weeks... We had seen nobody come to Jesus. Third week, we were at a college in Texas. It's in central Texas. And when we got there, they said we had some late-minute additions. It's the largest camp in Cross Point history. And I preached from the ladder, and I came down, and I gave the invitation on that night, and I waited. And there's a little... Girl, fourth, fifth grader, sitting right over here in that college auditorium. And she walked down to me by herself completely, which was strange because in those camps, a lot of times they'd have four or five come or parents come or counselors. 
And she just said to me, God told me to get out of the tree, and so I climbed down. And I prayed with that little girl in that moment. It's probably the longest prayer I've ever prayed there, because in my own heart, I was just giving thanks that the Lord was doing something. And when I opened my eyes, there were 25 kids standing there. It was all because one girl decided to get out of the tree, and they saw it and were encouraged. When Jesus asks, we say yes. Third thing, our lives should demonstrate that Jesus changed us. This is immediate. Immediately, Zacchaeus, with joy, with glee, is giving away his entire fortune to follow Jesus. By the way, I don't know if you realize this. I know you were here last week. Um, we talked about that Jesus asked a man who had much money to give everything you have to the poor, and then he could follow him. Uh, I got that um, put back in my face on Tuesday night. I had a young lady who goes to church here, one of our kids that was in family worship, uh, ring our doorbell for trick-or-treating. And when I opened the door, she said, can you give me lots of candy? You said on Sunday that you're supposed to give everything you have to the poor. Could you do that right now? I told Easy Jackson that was not going to happen while I heard David and Katie laughing loudly. But the first of those stories is just a few verses, that story before this one. And there is a significant contrast in one man did not allow his life to be changed by Jesus and he went away sad. And Zacchaeus can't give it away fast enough because Jesus has changed his life. It goes from ought to want. And there are two areas in particular that your life ought to show. Now, this isn't all of it. This isn't comprehensive. But there are two areas that Zacchaeus does that I think are important. First of all, you have a care for people that would not be there without Jesus. A desire to help people, to love people, to help others. And he's like, I'm going to give all of this to the poor and four times what I stole from them. And the second thing is, there is a joyful generosity that is in our lives when we are following Jesus. We want to give it. Here's the last thing and then we're done. Our mission comes from God. God's mission is to seek and to save the lost. We are his ambassadors in this world. And so his mission is our mission. And when I say our mission, I could have just as easily said, and it's true, God's mission is your mission. Because sometimes we hear that we're like, that's right, that's what the church is for. It is for seeking and saving the lost. And I would say to that, amen, that is what the church is for. I would also say, and that is what your life, your individual life is for. This is not just a call to the collective y'all. This is a call to the singular you. Your mission in life is God's mission. 
He has allowed us the opportunity to be a part of that and to give of ourselves for the glory of his name, for the spread of his kingdom, to seek and to save the lost. And as we are involved in that by our generosity, by our going, by our telling other people about Jesus, we are fulfilling the call of Christ on our lives. And so you say, what does it take to follow Jesus? Well, for Zacchaeus, it was completely changing. Just a question. Do you think he was a tax collector anymore? I don't think he went back. Because his life had been changed. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What is it, whatever it takes. It means being willing to just say yes and follow whatever that means. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today and for the chance we have to worship and to be here, and to put ourselves in a position to hear from you. And Lord, we pray that today you would give clarity to us that we would know what you mean when you say, come on down. Help us to know what that step is in our lives right now that we need to take to follow you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.